Again, it's good to see all of you this morning, and I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, and uh, the verses I'm going to read are verses 30 to 47, and uh, this is what we read. It's a fascinating passage, really. Jesus is defending the fact that he's been accused of making himself equal with God, and uh, we looked at the first part of that response last week. It's really, the, this is, these are the words of Jesus defending the idea or the truth, that he, he was making himself equal to God, how that could be so. And uh, we're moving now from the first part of his, I guess I'll say it, his speech, his defense, his delivery to the second part. Beginning in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, you sent to John. In other words, you, you went to John, you, you heard him, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a bright and sure, uh, shining light, a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you'd make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just before reading this morning, I hope you kind of think of yourself in these, in these terms that we're again joining this audience who's listening to Jesus as he defends himself against this charge that he's making himself equal to God because he called God his own father. But ra rather than refusing uh, the charge, he defends its truth. Under this overarching statement back in verse 9, he began by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. I, I don't do anything on my own. I, I can't do anything uh, by myself or of myself apart from God. And he insists, in other words, that he's, 
that he's not a rival to God. He's not a, another God. He's completely dependent upon God. He's completely submissive to God. And otherwise, equality with God for him would be utterly, completely impossible. <laughs> he wasn't submissive to God. He could not be equal with God. God is his father. God is the one of whom he is, of whom the Son is. He is of God. He is of the Father. And he sums up this relationship that he has with, with God as a relationship of love. That's the way he sums it up. Not something greatly metaphysical. He def- sums it up as a relationship of love that the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does and the Son does only what he sees the Father do and the Father for the love's for love's sake, has even given to his son his, the father's, prerogative to raise the dead and to judge. And he's done this, he said, so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Now this is Jesus' explanation of how it is that he is equal, making himself equal to God. It's because God really is his father. And he calls him his father. But it raises the question, doesn't it? It raises the question, Jesus, how do we know that what you're saying is the truth? Your word alone proves nothing. And you know, Jesus absolutely agrees with him. He absolutely agrees with that. He addresses this, he moves and begins in addressing this by repeating almost verbatim what he had said back in in, uh, earlier in verse 19. He begins by saying, I can do nothing of my own accord. I can't even bear witness on my own accord. Even this confirmation that I share equality with God depends on God. Not on me, not on what I say. Verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Then he adds, but there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Jesus sidesteps momentarily. He pays a respectful nod to the witness and the testimony of John the Baptist, but he returns to his point in verse 36. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The testimony he has is the testimony of the Father, of God to him. He makes this very clear because he goes on to enumerate the threefold witness of God. Threefold witness of God. Think about this. Especially if you're not Christians and you're here just kind of thinking, you've heard things about Christ, but you're wondering, how can I know this is true? Jesus said, look, if I bear testimony to myself, I'm the only one. Well, that obviously can't be true, but there is this other, and it's not a man. The man was good. John was good. That's good, but it's God. And first in verse 36, Jesus establishes this. I mean, God was testifying of Jesus, testified of Jesus, his son, that he was his son in the works that he gave Jesus to do. Now, in the immediate context, he had just healed a man who'd been lame, for 38 years. Who lay beside a pool day in and day out thinking that 
you know, for some sort of mysterious or superstitious reason, if the waters of the pool got stirred up and, and he could only get down to it, he might be, be healed. Well, that was pretty fanciful. But, but Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed, and he said yes, and he healed him, and he told him to take up his, his mat, and he told him to, to, to go ahead and, and, and to go. And you have to understand that in doing this and in many other healings and miracles that he did in all of them, what was Jesus doing? He was overriding the natural order. He was exercising the authority of the creator over the creation. You know, he was, he was doing divine work. It was impossible apart from God. So as Jesus is going about teaching and calling God his own father, God is pouring out his favor on Jesus. He is sharing the complete divine prerogative with Jesus. He's confirming Jesus even as Jesus testifies that God is his father. God's testifying, yes, indeed, he's my son. Yes. Miracles could not have been done. They were not tricks. They were not sleights of hand. They were not... You know, uh, you know, sort of short-term uh, you know, result of short-term result of some sort of psychological power suggestion. He was healing people. He's doing miracles. And second, verse thirty-seven, he says, "And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Not only does the Father bear witness of me in the works that I do, but he bears wit- he's borne witness of me himself." Now, Jesus doesn't elaborate. But as to suspect, he may well have been referring to his baptism. The Bible says the heavens were open, and God spoke, and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, this happened later in Jesus' ministry, in the Mount of Transfiguration, when God said, this is my son, listen to him. It happened again and recorded in John 12 as the Gentiles began to, to come, and Jesus said, you know, Father, you know, glorify your name through me. And God says from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But it is the third testimony of the Father that's our focus this morning. And it begins in verse 38. And this is what Jesus said. He said, you do not have his, that's God's word, abiding in you. For You hear that? You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe that I am the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's those that bear witness of me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then again, in verse 45, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. It's very common for the Jewish people at that time to believe that just as Moses had interceded for Israel in the wilderness, Moses would be interceding for them when, you know, when they went to heaven you know, and stood before God. And so it was very shocking for Jesus to say, actually, he's going to accuse you. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, Jesus had just said a number of very important things, but this morning I want to focus on, on two. 
two implications, two things that he did say. First, you, know, you can know the Bible. You could know the scriptures inside and out, and not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, and completely miss the forest for the trees. You understand that? You can completely miss the forest for the trees and be very, very smart about it. You can do that. Some of you, you people who appreciate what good music is, have all the great hits of the Eagles and the great voice of Glenn Fry. And you know that in one of his songs he said, you can see the stars and never see the light. And that's really true of the scripture. The scriptures are God's witness to his promise of a coming one whom he would send for the salvation of the world. All scripture is. And Jesus underscores this. He underscores this by his reference to Moses. You know, the promise that God would send a savior isn't reserved for the prophets in the latter part of the Old Testament. That's where we tend to focus, you know, at Christmas, Isaiah, the virgin birth. Um, uh, you know, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Uh, um, uh, Micah, you know, he, he'll be born in, in Bethlehem in, in, um, at Easter. You know, we, we focus on, you know, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We focus on Zechariah, uh, that behold, your king will come to you, humble, riding on a donkey, we tend to focus on the prophets and on prophetic statements in the Psalms. And it's right, because they're in the Bible, they're in the New Testament. So it's right that we would do this. But for Jesus, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't begin with the prophets. He begins with Moses. He begins with the writings of Moses. And that's the first five books of the Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you went to Sunday school from childhood in this church, you would know those are the first five books in the Bible. Yes, it's exactly right. And Jesus was speaking with Jewish scholars. I mean, these were real scholars of the Old Testament. They had customarily memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, at least the law, entirely. And they did it in Hebrew, not even in English. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. Some of them had memorized the entire Old Testament. And we can joke about people knowing things backwards and forwards. You know, there were Hebrew scholars who could write the Old Testament in reverse. They were that sharp. There are at least books of it. But regrettably, I mean, candid here, candid, it's a bit of a painful truth. But I do want to make it very clear. You know, it's a little painful for me to say it. Honestly, I'd rather not. But... This same condition describes many of the finest Old Testament and New Testament scholars in the world today who confidently expound their theories with reams and reams of footnotes. And their theories are nothing more than conjecture to do what they call deconstruct, which is really to destruct or to tear apart the integrity of the scriptures. They see nothing divine about the scriptures. They see no consistent testimony to Christ. They cite each other 
They give glory to each other, but they do not seek the glory that comes from God. They occupy chairs in the, of learning in the most prestigious universities and schools in the world that once prepared men to be pastors. And regrettably, a number of those schools still do. And the result has been real disaster for the church. And you read their books, uh, you see them quoted, um, they taunt the church. But I want to say this morning in response to that, that because the Old Testament is full of Christ, the New Testament is full of the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament has 360 quotations from the Old Testament. It has over 500 clear allusions or references to the Old Testament. When you read the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, you see that, in essence, the New Testament confirms the Old Testament as a witness to Christ. And the Old Testament confirms the New Testament as a witness to God's Son. You cannot, this, this is completely inseparable. The testimony is inseparable. And I want to encourage you not to be shaken by what the most knowledgeable critics ever say or write about the scriptures. Or when you run into someone who has heard them teach or read what they write. Do not think for a moment that their refusal to see God's testimony to his son in the scriptures means that that witness is not there or that he is not the Christ. I was thinking this week about Matthew chapter 11 and how when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent a delegation to Jesus. And I mean, you know, he was, right? Who was John? He was the prepare, prepare the way for the Lord guy. He was the one who said, the coming one is here. But he's in prison. You know, life is not going well for him. It is not what he expected it to be. And so he sends this delegation to Jesus. And the question is, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And Jesus' response was, go and tell John what you see. The blind are being given sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are being healed. The deaf are having their ears open, the dead are being raised, and the poor are having the good news of God preached to them. What was he saying? He was referring to multiple Old Testament references to the coming of Messiah and what would happen as God's kingdom was birthed and inaugurated on earth. And those things were the very things, the works of God through him, that were happening in Jesus' life and ministry. No matter what you hear, don't ever forget that you've heard this. That Jesus said of the scriptures, and in particular the Old Testament scriptures, it is they that bear witness of me. And they do. And they've been preserved for us at the cost of martyrs' blood. Because they do. They're part of our Bible because they do. And from Genesis, they're God's witness to himself and to his son. And you can see it for yourself. That's why I focus on this third 
uh, display or confirmation or testimony of God to a son. We have it. And when you think about the scriptures yourself, I would say to you, as I say to myself this morning, they are worth your life to preserve. They are worth your life to preserve, to defend their integrity, to insist upon it with those who deny it. However God calls you to do that, even if it means martyrdom, they are worth your life. They are the testimony to the Savior of the world from God that has been entrusted to us. Here's the second important thing that Jesus taught. That when he named, that he named the real issue in the finest scholar's failure to see God's testimony to his son in the scriptures. He names what the issue was. That the most brilliant, the most studied, you know, the most erudite, the most respected, the best Hebrew grammarians in the whole world missed it. And he names the issue. And he begins by doing that in verse, the end of verse 31 and verse 32. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. In other words, I'm not really concerned over whether you approve of me. I'm not courting. I, I'm not trying to get into your club. I, I'm, really, I'm really not concerned if you're going to give me your honor. I don't need your, your pen on my chest. I don't need your medal around my neck. That is not why I've come. So that is not why I'm going to say what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to coerce you into putting a medal on my neck or letting me into your club. I am not distressed about those things. What I'm distressed at is this that you reject me because you do not love God. If you loved him, you would love me because I am of him. He has sent me. I am his son. He is my father. You would love me if you love God. If you loved him, if you love God, you would not settle for being a scholar of the scriptures. But that's enough for you because you love yourself and you love the honor that that brings to you. It's enough for you to receive honor from others in exchange, of course, for the honor that you give them back. It's enough for you that, that they footnote you all the time and of course you in turn will footnote them all the time. It's enough for you because you love yourself. You do not love God. You know, when Jesus revealed himself, people had every reason to be surprised. But they had no reason to be offended. And this remains so today. Every time a person hears about Christ for the first time. This week, I found myself, I was so frustrated. So frustrated. This week, 
because of this passage, I found myself searching the scriptures and reflecting very, very deeply on how God testifies of Christ in the Old Testament. Reflecting deeply, you know, writing copiously. I'm thinking, you know, yesterday in the morning coming up to noon, boy, this is going to be a great sermon. Twelve pages, but a great, no, I can't do that. I cut it off. I start rewriting. About three o'clock in that, man, this is great stuff. I, and I, 14 pages, no, I got to cut it back. I mean, it was so frustrating for me, honestly. I was reflecting on the rich heritage of God's testimony to a son throughout the Old Testament. I mean, everything from his promise of a savior to Eve to his promise that a savior would be born through barren Abraham and Sarah, to his revelation to Moses on Mount Horeb as he gave Moses the law. His revelation at that point that Moses was not the end, that the law would not be the end, that he would raise up a prophet like Moses, only far greater than Moses, and people were to listen to him. And Moses didn't even bring that up until shortly before he died at the end of Deuteronomy. He told what happened way back at Horeb 40 years later. It had been in his heart for 40 and then he shared it. Of course, Deuteronomy ends and says, you read the last verse of Deuteronomy, that prophet hasn't come yet. We can move on to God's promise to David to raise up an offspring that would reign together and of the prophets then after David in a period of great apostasy and terrible kings insisting on the divine nature of that coming son that he would atone for sin, that he would conquer death and then they applied to him the very title that had been given to Moses, that he would be the servant of the Lord. It brought it all together to the promise of the forerunner in which our Old Testament, the book of Malachi ends, that there would be a forerunner, there'd be another Elijah, he would prepare the way for this Christ. The whole scripture testifies of this and I don't even like to go through this litany with you because it feels to me like I'm cherry picking. I'm telling you, the whole scripture testifies of Christ. It's God's testimony to himself and to his son, a coming one whom he will send from Genesis, from the fall. It is the one hope. It was the one hope, the only hope God gave to Adam and to Eve in the face of death and sin and evil. It was the one hope hope the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent that's the only hope he left them with in the face of sin and death and it never changed after that the old testament is not about the land of israel the na- the land it's not about the nation of israel all these are secondary it's about that one hope being fulfilled And I tell you that the scriptures are such a bountiful and rich and ever-increasing testimony to God and his son. And it really is inseparable. It is inseparable. And when you see and read and hear, you know, the, the fruit of scholars and their conjecture, on ways to sort of unre- unweave the strands and traditions of Scripture and how this came in and then that came in and then they all, it's ridiculous. You know, you, <laughs> Scripture is not woven cloth. It can't be unwoven. It is a consistent, you know, integral, integrated testimony from God over the course of centuries. 
And to think it's other than that. To think it's other than that. It's pure conjecture, supported by all those footnotes I talked about. But it's not true. It's not true. The plain sense of Scripture is enough. It testifies of Christ. And it testifies of Christ because the Scriptures from the very beginning are from God. Now why do I say this? I want you to understand this this morning. That God does not entrust. He has not entrusted his testimony to an academy of biblical scholars. He has entrusted his testimony to those who love him. He's entrusted his testimony to you and to me, to the church. It's those who love him who are entrusted to defend his testimony and to direct their minds to that end. Others simply cannot do it, and they will not do it. It's on us. It is on us. There's a doctrine that the Protestant Reformation underscored, and it's the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Many aspects of that. But one aspect of the priesthood of all, the, of all believers is, you know who the Bible belongs to? It's from God. But you know who he gives it to? To you. It's yours. To know, to love, to defend. And to give no quarter to another. No matter how prestigious. Who says that it doesn't mean what it plainly says is true. We have a very great responsibility and more an amazing honor that God should entrust us with his testimony. And I'm going to encourage you, don't fear to own it. <laughs> don't feel overwhelmed. Jesus repeatedly insisted how he began this sermon, I can do nothing on my own. How much truer is that of us? He knows that. God has not left us to, he has not left us to our own devices. He has delivered us from our own devices. He has left us with his word. And he has given us his spirit to understand them and to take it to heart and to hold fast to it as if our lives and the future of the world depended on it. Because it does. These are the words of God. And they're his testimony to a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for your mercy and goodness to us in Christ. And we thank you for your word. This light unto our feet, this lamp unto our path. And God, I pray that you would raise up many here really sincerely, who are, all of us would be real students of Scripture. Jesus, after all, was the rabbi. He was the teacher. We are the disciples, which means we are the learners. He taught the Scriptures, the Holy Word. He expounded its truth and applied it beautifully. And I just pray, Father, that this would be a passion of ours. Not because we think that in those Scriptures we have eternal life, but because they're a testimony to you 
Father, and to your Son, whom we trust as our Savior. Lord, keep us strong in this. Don't let our zeal, you know, flag. We don't want to be arrogant and overbearing either. But humbly and fiercely, we ask you to help us hold on to the truths of your word. Because they feed us eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.